agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good afternoon, Mike. Hey, good afternoon, Jay. How are you doing this afternoon? Well, like a special master with a pile full of presidential documents, I'm uh, I'm ready to dig in. Here. <laughs> there you go. All right. Yeah. Well, we will certainly get into special masters and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff, including that interesting rally response rally. I don't know. Donald Trump had in Pennsylvania uh, after Joe Biden's speech, and uh, uh, that insurrectionist Trumpist uh, who was removed from office in New Mexico, and maybe some. Post just post Labor Day thoughts on the state of labor in America and an interesting new labor law in California that I can guarantee Jay is going to absolutely hate. So it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about and we will get going in just one second. Okay, Jay, you know, before we get started, I want to let folks know that you and I are doing something new, or at least we are embarking on something new in the weeks to come and that is uh mike and jay's book club it's sort of an idea that yes yeah, we've been we've been talking about this uh kind of randomly for years and uh finally we are going to stop talking about it and actually do it so here's how it's going to work it's going to be a regular feature of uh of the supporters bonus show that midweek show and jay and i are going to alternately pick books and then we're going to we'll let you know what they are ahead of time so you can follow along if you will and we're going to take a few chapters every week so small enough chunks where if you do want to follow along you don't have some kind of huge reading load and uh things we're going to pick things that are obviously political and things that we might disagree on and so uh we think it should be a lot of fun and we're also going to encourage folks if you do want to follow along to send in your questions and observations you can post them on discard or discord or mail them to us and your your thoughts and ideas can be part of the show as well i i think it could be a lot of fun or you know, Jay, it could be a total disaster, but we're going to try it out anyway. Uh, sure. So. Yeah. So what's what's our first book going to be? Mike? Our first book is a book called Everything, All the Time, Everywhere, How We Became Postmodern by Stuart Jeffries. Um, and Sounds fun. Uh, it's definitely, you guys could probably tell, this is the this is my choice. Actually, Stuart Jeffries is uh, the author of another book that I'm currently reading about the lives of the founders of the Frankfurt School, kind of a neo-Marxist group. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's right up my alley. But anyway, I am sure Jay will have a lot to say about everything all the time, everywhere. I know I will, and I'm hoping that uh, uh, a number of you will pick it up and uh, join in with our, with our conversation with their questions and thoughts. So that will start. We're off next week, Jay and I are. So that will start in a couple of weeks. So you have plenty of time to get your book order in and have any, send any questions to us. So there we go. Okay. Great. With that out of the way, let's start with our top story. On Monday, Federal District Judge Eileen Cannon ordered the appointment of a special master to review documents seized by the FBI from Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home and office. Now, Judge Cannon, who was appointed to the bench by Trump in November of 2000, wrote in her opinion that while there had not been a compelling showing of callous disregard for Trump's constitutional rights, he faces the risk of irreparable injury, both from the potential use of privileged materials in future prosecution, as well as from reputational injury, with Judge Cannon concluding that as a function of plaintiff's former position as president of the United States, the stigma associated with the subject seizure is in a league of its own. A future indictment based to any degree on property that ought to be returned would result in reputational harm of a decidedly different order of magnitude. Now, in addition to ordering a special master, Judge Cannon ordered a temporary injunction on the government's use of those seized materials for investigative purposes, aside from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence ongoing national security assessment of those materials. Uh, the way Cannon put it is, to appoint a special master to make privileged determinations while simultaneously allowing the government in the interim to continue using potentially privileged material for investigative purposes would be to ignore the pressing concerns and hope for the best. Um, 
Now, a lot of legal experts were surprised at the ruling, arguing either that Cannon might somehow feel beholden to the president who appointed her or that she's in essence creating a special legal status for former presidents that doesn't exist either in law or any commonly accepted interpretation of law. And I should point out, it's not just those on the left who are saying this. For instance, former Attorney General Bill Barr called Cannon's decision deeply flawed in a number of ways in an interview he had with Fox News. And he said that the Justice Department should appeal, which it has. Uh, but even if the decision stands on appeal, it represents less a win for Trump than what he termed a, de- a rain delay for a couple of innings, which that's kind of a weird metaphor because rain delays don't last innings. But anyway, we get his point. Um, and in fact, on Thursday, DOJ filed an appeal to Cannon's order asked that she allow them to use classified records, uh, which they call a discrete set of just over 100 documents, arguing that her order was preventing them from determining whether there might be additional classified records that are being improperly stored. And they note that in their initial search, they found a number of empty folders marked as classified, which led them to conjecture that these contents might have been lost or somehow otherwise compromised. And they further argued that the halt in the investigation may irreparably injure their investigation, which involves risks to national security. And in response to this, Judge Cannon directed Trump's attorneys to respond to this by Monday. So, Jay, there's a lot here. Uh, What do you think, I guess, first about the ruling and then the reactions to this? Then we can talk about how we see this all playing out. So the ruling, there's there's a couple things going on. Um, The first is. Uh, the adequacy of the Justice Department's um, uh, scan team, right, to be able to 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 weed out stuff that is uh, privileged. Now, there's two kinds of privileges we'll talk about here. Um, but the first being just plain old attorney-client privilege. And uh, there were, at, at this point, the Justice Department identified at least 500-some documents that fit that bill, right, that, that are privileged, regardless of whether you're a former president or not. Um, ought to be kept from the uh, investigative uh, view. Um, And she suggested that, you know, there were other sort of lapses in that screening process that indicated that others, you know, some of these these, uh, attorney-client privilege documents could get through. Therefore, it's good to have essentially a second set of eyes um, that would, could, would, would be, there there would be less risk of, of um, uh, contamination, I guess, that would be the best word. So on that, I, I think she's on pretty solid ground. Um, uh, well, you know, again, well, before no- you before you get to the second issue, I think a lot of folks, including I, would take would take issue with that on legal grounds because it sounds it sounded like to me in reading her ruling on this that uh, she she basically created sort of a special extra level of scrutiny when we're talking about former presidents, and of course that's nowhere in law. And in fact, there are plenty of instances in which there are there are governmental investigations that involve matters of privilege and they're almost all handled by some sort of a some sort of review team than not a special master, which is uh, far less common. And so I I just want to point out that I, I understand your argument, but I think that one can reasonably take issue with that and say that she is, in fact, setting up sort of a different standard that wouldn't have been in place had this been, you know, you or I. I mean, that's that's probably true. Um, I, I, mean, I guess what I meant by not, not true, so I was going to say that there's really no question that um, you, the, the, the feds who are investigating you shouldn't get uh, attorney-client privileged material. Right, which is why I they set up those teams. That is, yeah. that is uncontroversial. Um, uh, I, I would agree that the, his his status as, as a former president um, changes maybe the special master determination, um, but it doesn't change the privilege determination. And and I guess that that special master piece you know goes to, and and the judge uh, set this out uh, early in her opinion that says listen, listen, I'm being asked to do this under the court's equity jurisdiction essentially, uh, and uh, so it's not necessarily. Uh, you know, in, in that in equity, you you sort of play a little faster and looser, uh, and you take into account other concerns. And one of the concerns she notes is is this is um, uh, a a matter of great public interest and a matter of great public concern. Um, and you will want to avoid 
the appearance on the one hand. I mean, I understand your concern of saying, well, is there a special rule for, for Trump? Um, but also, given uh, the history of the two parties uh, involved, um, you know, and, and the, so much of the response, this is something that the, the American public needs to have confidence is handled correctly. Uh, and I think the the decision saying, listen, we're going to do this, and as, as Bill Barr points out, it, it's a rain delay, right, um, uh, to make sure we get that right, given that this is the first time uh, in history you've ever had a search warrant uh, executed on a former president. Um, I, I think that's I think that's a, a pretty important interest. And you could say it's it's unprecedented, and, and you'd be right. Uh, but this is, you know, that's that's the nature of of, of uh, this this situation where you, you're, you know, executing a warrant on, on the, the most recent occupant of the White House. So, well, you know, I, um, I, I got to say, I, I both agree with the critics about the legal reasoning and the concern about creating special status for people simply because they're I mean, I, I think that the, even the logic about, well, a damage to his reputation, it could be worse because he's president. Well, I mean, your reputation can be irreparably damaged, even if you're, you know, city council person Jones or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. So I think that's crummy logic. But even so, even if I don't agree with her or think she's on much shakier ground than you do legally, I agree with you as a practical matter. As a practical matter, I think it's not only the right decision, but if if I were Merrick Garland, I would have maybe even considered requesting some sort of a special master from the outset, given oh, all yeah. of those things you talk now. But I should say, I understand that that would be essentially slowing down your own investigation. And they are making claims that that could potentially lead to other issues, which sounds like, well, the longer, the more time goes by, we think there's some stuff they still have that they're trying to get rid of or something. I don't know. That's my sense of things. And so they would have to weigh that. But, but I, I agree with you that because. Or, or if, yeah. Yeah. Or, go ahead. Yeah. I shouldn't, I shouldn't interrupt you. I no. agree agreeing with you. <laughs> I keep on um, going. Yeah. But, but no, or, or, or if you're more sinister, conspiracy minded and believe that the FBI does stuff like, uh, uh, you know, alters emails to get uh, warrants and that sort of thing. Uh, you, you might also think you might be concerned by the justice departments. Uh, no, no, no. We really need to hurry this up. We really need to hurry this up. Um, after he's been out of office for a year and a half, um, uh, there, there are some who might get the sense that, uh, uh, we're rushing for an indictment before the midterms. Um, no, I don't think that's going to happen. That's, no, that's that, the concern. That, well, no, I don't think that's the concern. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm one of those people. Oh, okay. I'm gotcha. Gotcha. A, a reasonable, an observer, right? If that's, that's one of the things that we need to guard against in this day and age, if we're going to protect the reputation of institutions, uh, and show that, that they are acting on the, uh, the up and up. And we're able to trust the the conclusions that these institutions draw. Uh, the, the the quick uh, the more of a um, um, uh, rush to the uh, the judgment uh, that there appears to be, uh, the more that weakens. Um, well, you know, and I think sort that, of the that, other the other approach to this again, I'll go back to Bill Barr, who I weird I find myself sort of <laughs> using in to defend my case much more than I ever thought I would uh, in other remarks he made to Fox uh, about you're, you're talking about this why the rush to judgment you know he said how long is government going to try to get those documents back they jawbone for a year they were deceived on the voluntary actions taken then they went and got a subpoena they were deceived on that they feel and the facts are starting to show that they're being jerked around and so how long you yeah. know how long do they wait was that that's beer that's Bob's yeah. point, and I think there's you know something to that. Yeah, no, no, there is. Um, but I think again, the the fact that they talked for as long as they did uh, sort of takes some of the urgency out of this, right? Um, that the, the again, this is when we talked about this when it first broke. Of you know, is there an imminent national security threat? Um, and and it doesn't. Didn't seem to be. Well, see, uh, I think, as point, I understand, we know, and I mean, we, we don't know. But. Well, as I understand, and again, this is all uh, uh, we're not getting the the volume of leaks that would make this yeah. easier to talk about. But, but as I understand, at least one theory of what's going on here is that there is increasing concern that as the pressure has mounted, that the Trump people are may have 
materials in their possession that would be better if they didn't. And so they are looking into ways to either conceal or destroy them or make use of them in some way. And so, I mean, so to me, it makes perfect sense that at first everyone's kind of casual. It's like, hey, you got some stuff. You forgot to bring it back. Oh, okay, yeah. And we kind of go back and forth. Then all of a sudden when it seems like, oh, wow, maybe there's some net that's closing on us. Maybe we should look through this and get rid of some of this stuff, essentially. And that, I think, is DOJ's concern. And it seems to me to be not an unreasonable concern. Yeah, not an, not an unreasonable one. But I think that that concern ought to take a backseat to the um, – view the the whether whether the the public can can trust what the justice department is doing because there's a lot of distrust out there well i wouldn't and, say yeah i see what you're saying yeah yeah i wouldn't say it takes a back seat but i think that those things both need to be weighed and, and you may you yeah. may yeah and i i say the one that weighs the other yeah but. yeah i can and i can see that i i come to a somewhat different conclusion but yeah yeah the other element of this right we wanted to talk about is the privilege and there are two types of privileges you pointed out at work here at least potentially one that's definitely and one that is probably not but we can't tell for sure right and the first of course is yeah go ahead well the first of course it was that attorney client privilege stuff we talked about and there's other sort of just miscellaneous confidential documents that uh, may or may not have been seized that are, you know, Trump tax records or uh, medical records or, or other things that you would have some sort of interest in privacy in otherwise. Uh, and then the the other, uh, which is a little more controversial, is executive privilege materials, which Trump has claimed. And the big question, of course, is, well, do you can you claim executive privilege when you are no longer the executive? Um, so there's there's a case and in, in both sides cite this. Um, uh, Nixon versus um, government uh, services. Yeah, GSA. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's not. This is not the the earlier Nixon in the tape subpoena case. This is a later uh, 1977 Nixon case, um, where Nixon sought to block uh, really kind of similar to what's going on here, a review by uh, archivists of of various material that he has, and. The the court, uh, Supreme Court, comes to the conclusion, well, look, uh, yes, there's an ex- interest in executive privilege, and they sort of hint that uh, there is an interest in executive privilege even for former executives, um, but they don't really spell that out, right? They sort of get to the point of, well, regardless, in this case, the interest of the, uh, the uh, archivist is not overly intrusive into any executive privilege. Um, and therefore, uh, you know, turn over the stuff. Uh, and uh, now so that's that's how that plays out. But I and I think I think you can you can fairly read the case. And I, I did. I, I went back through this because the, the government took a really expansive view of this. And they sort of said, well, you can't claim executive privilege against the executive branch. Um, and that's really not what what the case says. I mean, the, the case has, does have that quote in there. And then it, it follows up and saying, but. Uh, you know, there is there's something to a, a former executive, uh, a former president's uh, 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 claim of privilege uh, and also sort of acknowledges that that to, to the extent it exists, it sort of wanes the, the longer that that uh, person is out of office. Um, and it also wanes in uh, comparison to current occupants of the office. And and one difference um, so, here, so yeah, with the, but there, there's one difference here is that in this case, uh, uh, President Biden has, I don't believe for these documents specifically, but from other Trump documents that were given, he has, he has uh, basically said that executive privilege is, is waived, whereas in the 77 yeah. case, that wasn't the case. The, the, the sitting president did not explicitly waive the privilege. And that, that matters as well, too, because the court I, held that. I don't, know, I, I don't know whether they explicitly waived it or not, uh, but there, there's a line in there that uh, essentially says that, well, maybe, maybe they, they did waive, but it does indicate that the Carter administration or the Ford administration, the Carter administration uh, didn't see this material as, as being executive privilege material. Um, so whether there was an official, we're officially waiving this on behalf of the, you know, right. the United States or not. Um, regardless, that was something else the court looked at, that the the other, the current administrations uh, did not view this uh, to be as crucial as what Nixon had. Yeah, you know, so, I, I, I don't uh, disagree. And, and the court sort of took that in as a factor, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, um, I don't disagree with you here, actually, I don't think. I, in fact, you know, on the left, a, a lot of there was a lot of commentary coming out about how this was like the the. Uh, the worst, the worst judicial decision in the history of I don't know what, but that it was just horrible in 38 different ways. And, you know, and I was I read it. I was yeah. expecting to see some screed written in crayon or something like that. You know, and right. I, I read through it. Right. And I, Stop I, the steal. Well, yeah. You know, I mean, my reaction to it was, OK, at certain points, this seems to be a stretch a little bit and this does a little bit. But. It didn't seem to me to be at all this indispensable legal disaster that so many people pointed it out to be. Maybe deeply, maybe deeply flawed, as Bill Barr says. I maybe so, but oh, and, and here's here's the other the other the other point. This is something that goes to what the job of a district court judge tends to be. And one of the, the most important things that the district court judge does is build the record for an appeals court. Um, and if you look at, uh, especially on issues of privilege, uh, that as the saying goes, you know, privilege stuff, once, once it's been released, that's a bell that can't be unrung. Um, so if you're, if you're seeking to preserve these, these issues, right. And that, that, you know, let somebody else figure this out, uh, appointing a special master, uh, so that the, these bells are not unrung. Um, I think is is a pretty reasonable way to go. And also, if you're if you're just from the practical point, balancing the potential harms of uh, one, you know, loss of privilege, uh, uh, potential loss of executive privilege or attorney client privilege um, versus the potential delay in a criminal investigation um, that, you know, again, I think that um, that weighs in favor of, of, you know, appointing the special master. yeah, in a way, who can, yeah. who can come back and say, who can come back and say, look, I think what the Justice Department screening people did is entirely appropriate. That's exactly uh, I have the same thing. Here's what I think you should hand back. And here's what uh, here's what you can't. Um, and then obviously that would be subject to a separate review. But um, no, I mean, in the end, I, I, I tend to agree with with you and I guess uh, the former attorney general on this, that this, this delays things a little bit and may, maybe it does make it more likely if, if there in fact are, are people working for Trump who are interested in concealing documents, it gives them more time to do that. But honestly, at this point, I would think that they had all the time that they really would need. And so yeah. I'm not, I'm not entirely persuaded by the government's argument either. And so on balance, I think this is a, Reasonable argument. I was actually, I wouldn't say I was surprised that the government appealed, but in a way, I feel like, why don't you just go ahead and find the special master? And my understanding is that both the government and Trump's people are going to suggest folks to the judge. And if they can't mutually agree on someone, she will appoint that person. That's going to be a little trickier than normal because you need someone with not just top secret clearance, but with SCI clearance, yeah. clearance and and yeah. honestly, I wouldn't want the job uh, if I, you know, because you know that no matter what happens, you're going to get, unless you say everything is privileged, you're going to get all kinds of heat from Donald Trump and the Trump people. And who wants those headaches? So it might be tougher. It might be tough to find somebody who's both qualified and willing to take on the job. I don't know. But yeah. So, so how do you see no, this going to play I sus- out? I suspect we'll find somebody. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think so. So how do you see this playing out on appeal and just kind of down the line? Um, you know, I, I think the um, the what they they filed just recently on the appeal, which is to stay the judge's order uh, appointed special master. I I don't know that 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 gets overturned right away because again, I, I my sense with the special master uh, is that it seem it strikes me very much as a no harm no foul type solution, and unless the government has a, a compelling uh, story to tell, and they may well have that story, we just haven't seen it yet, right? about why this delay is would be so unacceptable um then i i i think the court uh, uh you know shouldn't shouldn't do anything in terms of expedited relief on appeal i think it's a good appeal question regardless right mm-hmm. you, you still tee it uh, up yeah. and it goes through the normal process um do you need to do you need to stay uh the the uh uh, the part that stops the the government from looking through stuff while the special master moves forward. I, I don't no, know. I, that you I, do. see what I you're think saying. that's I okay. think that's a tough showing. Yeah, I yeah. see what you're saying. That makes sense. So in the end, then you and I are. And there's involved. there's also, I mean, it could be it can be remanded back for for further, uh, you know, work this out so that 
you know, can we come up with a better compromise uh, that protects both the privileges uh, and, uh, you know, does not, you know, unduly impede the investigation, that sort of thing. So I think there, there's there's that kind of room. I, I certainly see why the, the Justice Department appeals it, just because that's what you sort of have to do institutionally. Got you. Sure. You know, I, 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 so. I guess in the end, I feel like we're not dealing with millions of documents, right? This is not a this is not a Herculean task or anything. Like 11,000. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so, yeah, it'll take a little while. But in the end, I really feel, again, and it's difficult to say, right, because there's all sorts of things we don't know and probably never will know that the Justice Department knows or thinks it, thinks it knows yeah. or believes. Yeah. But just based on what we've seen, my, my initial inclination is to feel that the Justice Department did not handle this as well as it could have politically, even if legally it was it was fine. I guess is where I sort of find myself coming down on this. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's where I've been from the beginning. <laughs> uh, to me, I, I, the the if he didn't wasn't complying with the subpoena, I think the proper response is you go to court and say, uh, your honor, uh, Mr. Trump is not complying with the subpoena as opposed to. Um, uh, moving forward with the issue with a search warrant. See, this is where you and I part company because I'm more inclined to believe yeah. that this was a this was a point at which they were like, we're getting indications that they're moving stuff and monkeying around with stuff in ways, and we need to move now. And I think that I wouldn't surprise me. Well, that and again, those are those are facts that neither of us exactly. know just because it's still sealed. But yeah, exactly, exactly. My my assumption is that that was part of the application on that redacted part of the affidavit that. Uh, was the reason why Judge uh, Reinhardt was it uh, granted the uh, granted the warrant in the first place? So, but yeah. yeah, all right. Any other thoughts on this before we move on? No, I don't think so. Okay, we're in surprising agreement you on know, this. You uh, know, largely, things. yeah. Well, let's see. If, I don't know if we'll yeah. keep it up. But we will find out here as we move on to our next story. All right, and next story. Well, I'll start back last week because last week Trey. Ken and I talked about Joe Biden's Pennsylvania rally with the the sort of, I think, bizarro world result of Trey actually being a bigger fan of Biden's speech than either Ken or I were. And uh, toward the end of that segment, Ken wondered out loud who exactly the audience for the speech was. And that was kind of a question that I had, too. And this week, it's been suggested that, well, maybe the audience was in part Donald Trump and that Biden was hoping to sort of goad the former president into reacting and helping Biden and the Democratic Party make Trump uh, the focus of the midterm elections. Because after all, when you're as unpopular as Joe Biden, why wouldn't you want to focus as much attention on a, as you can on a politician who's even more unpopular than, you know, you are? Um, and, and so, you know, whether or not Biden's speech was intended to bait Trump, Trump definitely responded with his own uh, interesting Trump, very Trumpian speech in Pennsylvania at a rally ostensibly in support of uh, uh, Pennsylvania gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano and Senate candidate Dr. Oz. But just like about every Trump speech, it ended up being <laughs> got mentioned yeah, occasionally. <laughs> exactly. It's Donald Trump and his grievances. Um, and just to pick out some of the uh, highlights, if you will, he called President Biden an enemy of the state, called his Pennsylvania speech the most vicious, hateful and divisive speech ever delivered by an American president. Uh, and I should know, um, vilifying 75 million citizens plus another probably 75 to 150. I think he just threw that in there. I don't know. But I think so. He also said that. The FBI and the Justice Department have become vicious monsters controlled by radical left scoundrels, lawyers in the media who tell them what to do, and that the 2020 that in the 2020 election, what the FBI did was corruption and election interference on a scale we have never seen before in our country, and that Republicans locally that ran things in a lot of states should be ashamed of themselves. Uh, he also expressed anger at the billions being spent in aid to Ukraine, not because he's against helping Ukraine, but if he'd been president, he would have said in his words, Vladimir, you're not going to do that, Vladimir. And Putin would have somehow been dissuaded from invading in the first place. And then, you know, along the way, he called for fast trials and swift executions for drug dealers and uh, in kind of a throwaway line suggested a Democratic Senate candidate, John Fetterman, that he supports taxpayer-funded drug dens and the complete criminalization of illegal drugs, including heroin, cocaine, crystal meth, 
and ultra-lethal phenytoin, and by the way, he takes them himself. Uh, so, crazy town. What's the complaint about uh, Starbucks CEO's uh, Howard, Howard Schultz's uh, thin legs? Yeah, you can pick out um, so much there. And another uh, bizarre sort of, yeah, Howard Schultz. He's got, the guy's got very thin legs. Have you ever seen this guy? Very thin. <laughs> Donald Trump, yeah. Oh, Thank you, folks. Just sort of strange non sequitur but I'll be here um, all week catch me on truth social but uh, so what what did you aside from and we both picked out our kind of own sort of hollers and to us they are but of course to a lot of people they hear former president and they think rightful president of the united states saying that by the way the fbi didn't just illegally raid my house did you know that they were part of the, the rigged election in 2020 um uh no uh but uh what did you make of his speech so it, to, to me, it's it's kind of funny because if you if you like I did, right? You sent me the transcript. I wasn't I didn't watch it. Um, so you start reading, and, and it starts out with the uh, what you might expect in a president or a former president giving a stump speech for other candidates. Um, you know, boy, the the other side's really screwed stuff up, and you got terrible crime here in in uh, Philadelphia, and uh, uh, boy, there's all kinds of trouble. But uh, thank goodness we've got. Uh, Doug Mastriano here and, and uh, Dr. Oz to help set it straight. You need to get out there and vote. And so it, and it so it starts out very much like a a typical uh, stump speech type thing, um, and then just veers into you know again the list of Trump grievances. Um, I I don't I don't know who the audience is for the Trump speech stuff anymore, right? Um, I I I really don't I. I, mean, I suppose there's there's this this cult following type thing that that loves what he says, but I've always gotten the sense that there are a lot of people who just kind of go to these things just for more of the entertainment value. Um, I, I I don't know. Um, I don't know when I look so at it in, the in terms of. I guess I guess that's my that's my my take. Does does the Trump speech move the needle on much of anything? Um, Oh, I, I, it probably whips up a little bit of uh, uh, extra enthusiasm for for those candidates um, to the extent that they were mentioned um, at all. Um, but uh, no, does it? Otherwise, it just kind of strikes me as you know, Trump's kind of it, it's just the same thing we've seen before for quite a while. And uh, so, I don't know. There's, there's are, are no there's no that, new okay. material. It's the same as his last album. So so you're saying it's not that it's not outrageous and filled with just the most ridiculous lies like so many of his campaign events, but that anyone who's even remotely paying attention is aware that on the stump, Trump just makes stuff up. It's not even it's not even interesting lies. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, the, um, the John Fetterman, by the way, you know, crystal meth, cocaine, heroin user, that's, uh, you know. Oh, well, you know, he does them all. He tries he to. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, but I guess I guess that's a good um, point, right? Cause, because even if there's this sort of idea that Joe Biden was playing 3D chess and trying to get go Trump into a response. And oh, make, I think there was something to that, yeah. right? Because I think it's entirely predictable that, that that's the response Trump has. Um, but also that said. Look, Trump probably gives that stump speech, uh, regardless of whether Biden gave his speech or not. Yeah, probably. It just gets a little bit. Yeah, it's, there's a little bit different. It gives it, a yeah, little but, less coverage. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's probably true. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think that you know it doesn't really move the. It's not likely to move the needle a whole heck of a lot. And the best thing it does, as far as Donald Donald Trump is concerned, is keeps Donald Trump front and center. And I think yeah, other, and that's what the best thing for the Democratic Party at this yeah, point, too. Exactly. To keep, you know, he's 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 happy to oblige. So, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, we, going back, Donald Trump and being Donald Trump is the only reason why, you know, the Democrats are able to effectively control the Senate. Right. Because there's no way that both of those seats in yeah. Georgia would have gone. So. So, yeah, he's not uh, he's not the Republican Party's best friend, at least in a strategic sense, I don't think here in the midterms. But, uh, but you know, I, yeah. kind of the larger question, I think it's, it seems clear to me that for a lot of reasons, momentum is shifting toward Democrats. And while I feel like at this point, yeah, that may be enough to allow them to keep the Senate, I've, I've been starting to see some folks saying, well, you know, it's not crazy to think that Democrats could hold the House. And I, that's where I sort of get off that get off that ride because yeah. I just, you know, I, 
I think maybe if it were six months until the election and things got a lot better, a lot quicker, that wouldn't seem quite as like wishful thinking. But honestly, I that just seems to me to be borderline delusional, I would say. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. And the other piece of that to keep in mind is um, House races are different than Senate yeah. races. Uh, in that just the districts are are different, right? And, and the, those battleground districts, there there is a lot of, you know, for lack of a better word, territory, right, that the Democrats uh, are holding right now that in most years they probably wouldn't hold, right? Yeah. Those, those were Republicans who, who just were fed up with Trump. Uh, they were not necessarily Joe Biden fans or Democrats at heart. Uh, they were just uh, fed up with Trump. And, and I think there's sort of a um, return to the, uh, the mean on these, these things, uh, especially, uh, you know, when, when the economy is not going great. And I also something else that I think is um, I think the House seats are more susceptible to the wave election phenomenon than Senate seats are. Uh, again, that goes into just sort of the, the whole generating turnout as opposed to Senate seats, I think, tend to be more candidate by candidate. Uh, and you get you get states that have just very, very weird bounces. Right. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I, I can I can see that there, um, you know, and, and there's 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 so much more money spent on on Senate races, too. Right. But, but, in, in cases you might be more willing to vote for the generic whatever Republican yeah. in your House race, but maybe there's a, a, a Senate candidate you'd cross the aisle for. But, but even there in Senate races, it would not surprise me if, if Republicans end up with a one or even a two seat majority after the elections. I mean, take a look at, for instance, Georgia. Well, especially if Fetterman keeps taking all the drugs. Oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> right. But I mean, you take a look at Georgia, right, where it looked like, oh, uh, uh, Walker was was struggling mightily. And, you know, and Warnock was, yeah. was. But now you look at the most recent polling as we get close to election polling becomes more predictive. All of a sudden, Walker has a, a slight lead on him in many polls and i tend to, i still tend to think that until i'm proven wrong on this republicans that, under poll yeah. exactly that republicans under poll you take a look at someone like a stacy abrams right again in georgia who a lot of people thought oh she's going to do really well and now it looks like she is just struggling mightily in her race and so again I, for democrats to say well at least we'll have the senate i would say hey that's that's it would be a mistake to count on that sort of thing because yeah i I, whenever I look at the polls still, and I understand the arguments about about Democratic voters being more energized this time in post-Dobbs environment and the special elections and all that, and I take that into account. But again, I'm 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 prepared to wake up uh, a couple weeks after Election Day and find out that uh, find out that Mitch McConnell is once again the uh, the majority leader, in addition to uh, uh, you know the, the Democrats having lost the House. So. There we go. Well, some, something else that we haven't really talked about that's, that's sort of like an inside baseball kind of piece of this is that Mitch McConnell has also sort of opened up the purse strings um, in the last couple of weeks in terms of, of spending in some of these Senate races. Um, despite despite uh, Trump's complaints, uh, Trump and, and Trump actually has not been spending uh, uh, some of these, these Senate candidates, I think, are, would like to see certainly more money from Trump. Um, but the the uh, the Senate Republican caucus has been weighing in on some of these. And I think that's starting to make a difference. And you do start seeing things like um, um, I, I don't think Fetterman is a, a great candidate, um, you know, regardless of his drug use or, or non-use. Um, uh, right. I mean, he's he's just got some some baggage and uh, Thank God he's running you against know, us. That's all I got to say. <laughs> goofy sweats. And yeah, well, no, but that, that's that's the thing. Right. I mean, if. Uh, uh, if there was a normal uh, Democratic candidate uh, in that race, I, I think they, he could wipe before with Dr. Oz. Um, but you got, yeah, Federman who, who, you know, looks kind of uh, kind of squirrely. Um, you know, <laughs> Jay spreading Federman I mean, drug, drug rumors agrees. He's on crystal meth. Yeah, that's the headline anyway. <laughs> I'm not saying he takes, I, I'm just saying, you know, you know what I mean? The whole. Uh, I'm whole, staying out of this uh, one. You go ahead. You run sweatshirt, with this. Go ahead. sweatshirt thing, <laughs> and uh, you know it's uh, um, uh, Trump had a great bit on 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 him also with just the, the sweats. He's, he's wearing a sweatshirt. He looks dirty. He's crying. Me and Doctor Oz, we're clean freaks. Um, we're always look we always look good. I mean, it's just, 
but but no, I, I do think that matters, right? I mean, I, I can picture someone like um, uh, my mother uh, saying, "Oh my God, can you, can you see this guy? I hate to meet him in a dark alley," kind of thing. Um, you know, is especially if you're a Trump voter, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but of course, so, a lot of folks so say yeah, that's part I, I of his that's, appeal, that's right? He's not this kind of fake-looking sort of. This is it looks like a guy who dresses like a guy, and that's some of that same authenticity in a different way that different folks saw on Donald Trump. It's just but, it's, more but it's, he's like he's slumming though. He's he's faking. He's faking the uh, uh, you know the being the, faking the, it, the I don't I mean, know the guy the guy who rolls out of bed in his sweats. Um, uh, you know, I mean, he, he comes from a, a family of means who have supported him for uh, for most of his adult life. But that doesn't mean you're um, not making choices uh, that aren't authentic for you. I mean, you know, just Don, Donald Trump makes arterial <laughs> I, choices. I, about, I guess I suppose that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, but but anyway. Um, so yeah. So all right, but that's that's my 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 point on that is I I agree in that I think um, house races are are going to be tougher to win for the Democrats just by the part of the part of just the districts. That they're competing in and the number of seats they have to defend, uh, the general climate, um, uh, whereas the Senate races, I, I think you're right, it's going to be close. Um, but I think that comes down to more to to the candidates themselves. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I agree with you there. All right. Well, um, you know, we love to talk about the 14th Amendment here on the podcast, or at least it comes up a lot. Right, Jay? Um, And uh, this week we've got another 14th Amendment issue to discuss, but it's not the big glamorous headliner section one with all that cool stuff about due process and equal protection. That's most of what we focus on this week. It's sort of the forgotten stepchild of the 14th Amendment, section three which states that you can't serve in any federal or state office if you've taken an oath to support the Constitution and then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid and comfort to the enemies thereof. Now, this, yeah, yeah, I don't want to do that. This last week, a New Mexico state judge named Francis Matthew removed convicted January 6th rioter and county commissioner Coy Griffin from his position based on the Constitution's insurrection clause. In his ruling, Judge Matthew wrote, the irony of Mr. Griffin's argument that this court should refrain from applying the law and consider the will of the people in District 2 of Otero County who retained him as county commissioner against a recall effort as he attempts to defend his participation in insurrection by a mob whose goal, by his own admission, was to set aside the results of a free fair and lawful election by a majority of the people of the entire country, the will of the people, has not escaped yeah. this court. Um, Matthews argued that... Well, I think, I, think what, I think what may have escaped it is, I'm, I'm not sure that that's exactly what his uh, admission would have been. No, I, maybe not um, no, directly, yeah. 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 Now, the, yes. more the legal yeah. <laughs> argument, the legal argument was more that he wrote that Griffin's crossing of those barricades to approach the Capitol, that was an overt act in support of the insurrection, as Griffin's presence close to the Capitol building increased the insurrectionist intimidation by numbers, and that Griffin's marching with the mob all the way to the inaugural stage, knowing the mob's insurrectionary purpose, likewise constitutes an overt act. Now, Griffin said he was shocked at the ruling and that I really did not feel like the state was going to move on me in such a way. So uh, what do you think about this decision, Jay? Um, I think it's it's incorrect on a, a, a couple couple fronts. Deeply flawed? Um, First, 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 I think I, I do think um, we need to look at why the 14, why Section three of the 14th Amendment was drafted. Um, and I think it makes sense to a, a look at some originist originalist analysis here. Um, it was to prevent people like your your Jefferson Davises, right? Uh, uh, your people who had been. Um, officers of the United States, but uh, literally rebelled against the United States and formed a confederacy and fought a war uh, against uh, the country. Um, that I think is is something uh, apart from uh, protesting an election result. That uh, I, I think most of those people who were protesting believed, and I think incorrectly, uh, but but honestly. Um, that you know, the election had been stolen through some sort of chicanery, and uh, they were they were standing up for the actual will of the people, and that's you know that would have been a Trump victory. 
Now, I think they're wrong on the facts, um, but uh, that I, I, I think when you start defining, this gets in sort of the second piece of it, defining down um, insurrection uh, or rebellion into disagreement with the government and even even lawbreaking. Um, I think we're in a, 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 a sort of a territory we don't want to get into. Uh, as I understand, this this guy was convicted of it was basically trespassing, right? He wasn't. Um, yeah, misdemeanor uh, trespassing, and he was acquitted yeah. of disorderly conduct. Yeah, so I mean that's that's different than um, to me insurrection. Uh, uh, what if if that's you know if if that sort of trespassing is insurrection, and, and again it's if he was not charged, and, and the, the the judge's opinion even went on to say, look. It doesn't matter, even if he's doing this in a peaceful manner. Um, and I think that was even what's even most problematic for me, right? If he's he's peacefully protesting, um, uh, and he's not where he's supposed to be, uh, you know, in whatever you want to call it, civil disobedience, um, and you're going to say we're going to bar you from holding any office for life, um, I, I think that that is extreme. And I think what it invites is uh, courts to disqualify candidates uh, or to disqualify candidates through litigation rather than through elections, which I think is just generally unhealthy for yeah. the republic. Yeah, on, on this, I'm going to agree with you, I think, almost entirely. Uh, you know, to me, it seems like there need to be two elements, right? Number one, there has to have been an insurrection. And number two, yeah. that the person who, who's being charged has to understand it as an insurrection that he or she was actively aiding. And even if you make the case that there was an insurrection. And I think you can make that case. You and I have kind of gone back and forth now. You still, I think, need to prove too. And I don't know that you can really demonstrate that. And it seems to me that even if you can, the way to do that is not to have some judge say, yeah, felt like an insurrection to me. But, you know, I should point out uh, this engaging in inciting an insurrection, it's a federal crime. And so, what yeah. seems to me to be the kind of the bar you have to cross is saying, well, were you convicted uh, of this crime? Did you plead guilty to this crime? OK, then you're an insurrectionist, you know, um, and uh, yeah, I would I would I would agree with you 100 percent there. If there had been a, a conviction or, yes, insurrection or even something that is more um you know, bigger than than trespassing. Yeah, I mean, right uh, at, at this point. There are over 900 people have been charged with various things related to January 6th, but only a handful literally have been charged with seditious conspiracy. And that's working together to plan the overthrow yeah. of the government, prevent execution of the laws. There's some Oath Keeper guys, some Proud Boy folks and that sort of thing. And there, I think the case is a lot stronger. And But I feel like if you don't have enough evidence to say, well, we're you know, we can bring a successful case against you, then the idea that you would prevent the people from judging on their own whether somebody did something that was beyond the pale, that to me is is judicial usurpation of power and like the worst kind of judicial activism. Yeah, what about, I mean, um, yeah, if they couldn't even convict them of disorderly conduct. Yeah, I mean, so how does... Uh, it, yeah. I mean, if, if, you, if you think about that, if that were the test, there would be quite a few... Um, uh, baby boomer Democrats um, who could have been or should have been removed from office uh, for protests uh, against the Vietnam War. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, that sort of thing. Civil rights marches. Um, uh, they're out there challenging the, the authority. Oh, I suppose they weren't challenging the authority of the federal government in, in those some of those cases. In certain the draft cases, they were. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I think that's it. And, and if it gets to the point of, uh, again, as this judge said in his opinion, even speaking, you know, gives aid and comfort to those, uh, then that seems to to really dissolve your, your your freedom of speech. And it's one thing to say, OK, if you're convicted of inciting a riot. Um, yeah. But again, he wasn't charged or convicted with that. Uh, so, yeah. I'm so, yeah, I think this is I think this is troubling. Uh, and there was there were, there were two similar cases. Right. Uh, the. Uh, uh, state representative, um, uh, or not state representative, but representative uh, um, Madison Cawthorn, I believe, mm -hmm. um, uh, who was, uh, they tried to strike him from the ballot for being an insurrectionist. Uh, and it turns out they didn't really need to. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> he took care of that he, himself. He yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. And, and I, as I think, again, I think that's the much better, the better route. Uh, he went to court and fought for his right to be on the ballot and they put him on the ballot and uh, he got uh, shellac. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's uh, the much healthier um, response. Yeah. Definitely, I agree. So it's really getting it. We're getting along really well. well. Why don't we end yes. then with something that I am pretty sure something we're gonna, outrageous? Yeah, yes. yeah, something outrageously great. Um, anyway, so this past Monday was Labor Day in the United States, as, as many folks probably know, and so I thought it would be fitting for us to talk about. We'll probably have time for at least one story uh, about an important new labor law in California uh, that was signed into law, in fact, on Labor Day by Governor Newsom. And this is the Fast Food Accountability and Standards Recovery Act. It creates a 10-person council made up of business, labor, and government representatives to designate a minimum wage for the fast food industry in California, which could go as high as $22 an hour, with annual raises of either 3.5% or the rate of inflation, whichever is less. And the council would also be in charge of establishing industry-wide health and safety standards. Now, four members of the council would represent workers, four would be from the business side, and any actions by the council would require six votes in favor. And once they make their recommendations, the California legislature would still be able to reject or change those recommendations, as would the state OSHA agency for health and safety-related recommendations. And this law would apply, will apply to any fast food chain in California that has at least 100 stores nationwide that share a common brand. And to give you a sense of impact, there are an estimated 550,000 fast food, fast food workers in the state that would be covered by the new law, which the U.S. Chamber of Commerce termed a radical proposal to micromanage the fast food industry. Um, and the states, in fact, I should point out that the state's own Department of Finance came out against the law, finding that it would, in their words, lead to a fragmented regulatory and legal environment for employers and raise long-term costs across industries. Now, the sort of thing that's being done here is called sectoral bargaining, which focuses on a particular industry as opposed to trying to, uh, the method that's commonly used in the United States is where a union works with a specific uh, employer or specific business location that's called enterprise-based bargaining. And you can see the, from the labor's point of view, sort of the benefit is that you cover a lot more in one fell swoop, basically. And so that's why this approach that proved successful, at least successfully passed in California, is, at least according to the Wall Street Journal's reporting, being considered by activists in states like New York and Illinois. So, Jay, uh, like I said, I I would be absolutely gobsmacked if I didn't know how you stood on this, but why don't you, uh, why don't you go ahead and either confirm or deny my suspicions here? I will confirm all of your suspicions. <laughs> um, and I will say that my God, the U uh, S chamber of commerce um, uh, was really much too milk toast in their uh, uh, opposition to this. Um, my first, uh, yeah, I guess the, the, the first question is, is uh, who, who elects these, these commissioners? Um, the answer, as you answered, is, is well, they're not elected and uh, uh, they're appointed by people and uh, well, they can make rules unless other bureaucrats uh, decide to change the rules. Um, the, the next question is, this, this will, I, I think, devastate uh, jobs for a lot of young people who get their start uh, in, in these kind of uh, low-skill kind of, kind of jobs. And, yeah, it's low-skill, it's crummy, um, but, uh, you know, that's that's where people start. That's where they get experience uh, in the workplace. Um, third, uh, this is going to lead to uh, fewer people being employed in that industry. I think you'll see more and more companies go to some sort of automated uh, ordering or or that sort of thing. Uh, fourth, if you look at the, the people who tend to go to these uh, fast food restaurants, uh, it's going to be impacting more, more and more people on the lower end of the economic spectrum. Uh, it's going to be significant uh, inflation if you're talking about wages of twenty-two dollars an hour. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's just dreadful for for all of those reasons, the procedural ones, uh, as well as the actual policy ones, um, and, and even even more so. Uh, there's this idea that you're treating uh, 
uh, franchises, right, which are, are, are separate independent entities uh, as part of the uh, one larger big corporation. Sure, sort is, of. Yeah, great way, that's, to, yeah, yeah, that's, great way to get out of responsibility, that's, but a whole other story. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but that's but that's the point, and I, I mean, I think it's it's so much so often people don't think about this, but uh, McDonald's doesn't sell hamburgers. McDonald's sells hamburger franchises. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. Um, yeah, they sell a business plan, and then the the branding that goes with it, uh, and that's that's how so many of these places operate, and, and and these a lot of these franchises have been great small businesses for people to get involved in, and especially people who come in with maybe not a lot of business experience skills. Um, and I'm I'm thinking of of uh, a lot of immigrants, uh, in particular, who could save up and then own their own business through this model and really do quite well for themselves. Um, and there's this sort of this, you know, punitive type uh, idea that you're going to treat the small businessman who who owns the one McDonald's uh, the same way you're treating you know McDonald's Corporation, um, which is is something uh, different. So. Those are those. That's a short list of my reasons why this is a. Yeah, I, I figured you'd come out fired. Um, I did not necessarily expect the four point list. I'm impressed, and so let me let me say this: I, I am of two minds on this. I I like this in theory. Uh, I, I love the idea of sectoral bargaining. I think it's a it's a big important thing that labor should be working to do a lot more, and especially in states that are going to be likely to be more sympathetic to it, like. California, Illinois, New York, those kind of the the bluest of blue states. So that being said, and you and I have talked about minimum wage laws, which this basically kind of is a backdoor way of doing for a sector that I, I understand your concerns. I think they're all valid concerns. And to me, they're not reasons to not do it. They are just factors to consider because on the other hand, there's plenty of research suggesting that certainly for the people who are getting the higher wages, that can lift a lot of people out of poverty. So there are some there are some pretty considerable pluses to this, I believe. Yeah, while those jobs exist. And all those jobs aren't going to go away, Jay. But some of them will, sure. And so to me, it's a balance. And so this is where I, while I like the idea in theory, I searched for quite a bit of time yesterday looking for good analyses of these from California's own agencies, from the Chamber of Commerce. I found a lot of rhetoric, but what I didn't find was any decent budgetary analysis about things that you were talking about. And I know that those sort of analyses are possible because I've seen them uh, in many other instances. And so where I end up coming down on this is, yeah, I would I would love to vote for this if I were in that position, but you need to show me the numbers and you need to convince me that the arguments that people like Jay Carson are suggesting that those don't override any good that's being done. And so I am certainly inclined to support measures like this, but I couldn't say that I think this is a good idea for California simply because despite my best efforts to find some really solid data, uh, all I could find was a, a whole lot of posturing, basically, aside from that Department of Finance, which really didn't focus on so much cost to, to workers and employers, just focused on effects on state government. So that's why I and I guess when I'm unsure about something like that, if I were pushed to vote on this one way, I would vote against it without having additional information. So I'm not I, I, I don't want to say I'm with you on this, Jay, because I don't think you're even temperamentally inclined to support it. No, no, I'm not temporarily inclined to support it. Um, uh, Whereas I am, because the um, yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah, just just because I think a free market works works much better, and wages should should fluctuate based on location to some extent too, right? There's a supply and demand of labor, and uh, uh, you know what what the market charges in certain places, right? It's going to so. uh, again, I, I think that's those are those are decisions best left to, to the markets and the individual actors in them, um, and that's you get a, get end up with a better efficiency. And you've seen right uh, uh, rising wages, and, and the, the the problem that so many places are, are having is not that 
Uh, I mean, it's it's that they can't find workers. So there's this natural impulse that they're going they to They can find workers. Oh, that's, that's, with the I, love how, I love how folks on the right put it that way. It's what it means is they can't find what? people to work at what they're willing to pay. So the problem isn't that they can't find workers. Well, the problem paying, is they're not well, paying they, enough. But they keep, raising, they, they keep raising their wages, though. I mean, and, and they're still um, not attractive. I mean, I, I can still... You know, walk to the the plaza here, the block from my office where I go to lunch, and every single place has a help wanted hiring bonus. Uh, you know, come on in. Now, maybe that's not enough. And maybe if they have to compete with with different government benefits and government outlays, well, that makes it a little tougher. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there is there is a point uh, that that people will come back and work, assuming that they don't get a better deal not to work. And at this point, um, they're not really, so, that's not really the case, given that COVID, COVID era benefits are, are it's winding down. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and I also want to um, say that I, I think that again, not having, although that also, that also differs state to state. Right? Sure. Here in Ohio, it's pretty much wound down. There are other states that are, are that's not the case. I don't so. think that there's any place where, where it, where it's uh, economically a better a better case or a better place for you to go ahead and just get whatever remaining COVID benefits there are, as opposed to getting uh, the, the sort of job you could potentially get in this labor market. But it, so. but it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be better, right? Because the, 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 the comparison isn't between sure. uh, yeah. this, this job will pay me X, this job will pay me Y. It's sort of the, well, I can make X and have uh, do absolutely nothing and have complete freedom and do it, you know. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, that. I, I don't can, think it's you know, that either. Yeah. I don't think. But again, I'm not going to say for sure, given that I don't have the data in front of me. But I think that's sure. I, I think that's wrong. But uh, I, I, I do want to point out, though, that my my sense or my belief on this is that probably the groups that will be most affected are lower income groups uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, and so. Ideally, I would have I would have preferred been more inclined to support something like this if it's paired with something like would have been paired with something like an increase in California's earned income tax credit, which they have at the state level. They also have a thing called the the young child tax credit and something to kind of offset what I think will probably would probably end up being disproportionate economic harm to folks who are least able to be able to absorb that sort of economic harm. Um, so, so we're going we're going to cut your jobs, charge you more for your burgers, uh, but then we'll also pay you more uh, in uh, tax credits. Well, 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 no, I mean, I think, yeah, it's certainly redistributionist. Absolutely. I mean, isn't that isn't that sort of exactly? Yeah. What 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 the problem is where you're you're disincentivizing work. Um, and uh, instead of incentivizing uh, government handouts, if, if I can, if I can incentivize, if I can incentivize people to eat less fast food, I'm I'm all for that. If we want to get into public health sure. costs and all that, all right. so I think especially in this industry, it's, there's a especially strong case to be made that if tax policy, if government policy is in part designed to get people do do more of some things and less of other things, government policy that pushes people to eat less fast food, I think that's a big win for public health and Americans in general. People like burgers. I and people like a lot of stuff. People like crystal meth, I guess, you know, Doug Fetterman, whoever, you right. know, so that doesn't you, mean we it. encourage it, you know, so, so yeah, but, uh, but anyway, that's, that's what I think makes us uh, a little bit different as, as well. But that is, that is another issue that maybe we will tackle on another show, but for now, well, before we do go, I want to once again mention to folks, hey, check out When the People Decide. It's a podcast that takes a deep dive into citizen initiatives. I have been listening all season. I've learned a lot, uh, and I knew it would be great from the start because I've actually worked with, talked with, had on the show a lot of the people behind it, the McCourtney Institute. Uh, great folks. They put together great podcasts. So if you haven't listened to it yet, Take a minute, make a mental note, post-it note, whatever kind of notes you happen to make, and put When the People Decide in your podcast queue. Give it a listen. And, of course, you can find When the, Peop when the People Decide wherever you get the politics guys. All right. Well, that does it for this week's show. And if you're not already a supporter of the politics guys, we hope you will consider becoming one because without our supporters, we would not be able to do this. And when you get us 
Become a supporter. You get all sorts of good stuff, like ad-free versions of everything we put out. You get the midweek show. Uh, there's various supporter-level stuff at various levels. You can check it out at patreon.com slash politicsguys. You can also support us on Venmo or at politicsguys or through PayPal. And you can find all of our support links in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you'd like to get that midweek show, but you are just not at a point where you can support us financially right now, totally not a problem. We get it. Just send me an email, mikepoliticsguys.com, and I will get you set up with access to the midweek show. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really does help us if you subscribe, rate, and review us on the podcast app you happen to be using, and sharing episodes on social media also helps. And if you want to reach us for whatever reason, hey, if you're a supporter, you know there's that great Discord group we have where fun stuff's happening pretty much every day. We're on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find links in the show notes. You can also reach us in the old school 20th century way, mail at politicsguys.com. And finally, a special thanks to our executive producers. They are the best. Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode. And Mike, we, oh, go ahead. Well, I interrupted you. I'm no, sorry. Please no, go ahead. We should have a, a, it's a spoiler. Uh, we should have mentioned that we had a shout out to uh, all our new friends we met in Cincinnati uh, last week. Absolutely. Um, yes. But, uh, yeah, Mike and I were actually at an, an event together, and, and it, it, it turned into a sort of a weird impromptu uh, Public Skies <laughs> Live um, with alcohol uh, show. Better. So, but uh, <laughs> thanks for those people for their their, their understanding. Yes, <laughs> a- absolutely. That was it was a it was a really really fun event, and I'm I, I'm glad we got to we got glad we got to experience it. I'll say that. Uh, All right. Well, again, we'll be back with, well, Trey and Ken, I guess, will be back with a new episode for you next week. But then Jay and I will be back the week after that. And we hope you'll tune in.